when you have the CEO of the company going on 60 minutes, look, ma, no hands, um, that's a problem. And from the regulatory side, that's, that is off-label promotion of a, a, of a way of a regulatory product is being abused. The Tesla Q podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended for and should not be used as financial, investment, or trading advice. Research associated with fiscal decisions should be conducted elsewhere. The host of the show possesses no license or credentials to warrant accepting advice based on what is heard on the Tesla Q podcast. Additionally, even though the host and guests may hold positions in companies discussed on the show, they don't have insights into the next time step of the simulation. Therefore, do not make any financial decisions based on the contents of this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number 40 of the Tesla Q podcast. This episode is being recorded on July 31st, 2019. As always, remember to go to patreon.com slash Tesla Q podcast if you'd like to become a contributor to the podcast. Today's episode is going to be an interview with Milena Lakoski. Uh, she runs killingmycareer.com if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I'll have her tell more about that in just a little bit. But before we get to the interview, I see just now that Tesla has filed two Form 4s, one of which is for J.B. Straubel selling another block of 15,000 shares, apparently. But also, Robin Denholm, the chairman of Tesla, has purchased 1,000 shares on the open market. So J.B. has sold 15,000. Robin Denholm, with the honorific title of chairman, has purchased 1,000. And if I'm not mistaken... JB has three more blocks of 15,000 that he's going to be selling in the near future. So I won't be surprised to see a few more Form 4s over the next few days. So enough of the intro, time to get into the interview. As I mentioned, I'm here today with Milena Lakoski. Welcome to the podcast, Milena, for episode number 40. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, many of you probably have come across Milena on, on Twitter. Uh, is your handle killing my career? It is, or also my name, at Milena Lukoski. Okay, and uh, so let's just get started with telling you a little bit about yourself, or telling us a little bit about yourself, I should say. Well, I think, um, as you said, everyone kind of probably is aware of me on Twitter to some extent, and the killing my career is based off of uh, my time as a federal whistleblower, and um, I thought that that was a, a good way to put it, because that's exactly what any whistleblower um ends up doing essentially is if you come forward, you end up killing your career. So it's not a big deal. It's not a martyr situation. It's just a fact. And um, there are people that go through this that lose a lot more than a career. Killing my career uh, came about because obviously I was a federal whistleblower and that was one of the things that the FBI sat down with me the very first day and said, well, you do know that you'll lose all your friends and you are killing your career, essentially, is it. And um, when I worked for a Clarent or Johnson & Johnson's a Clarent, there was always talk about, oh, someone should be a whistleblower. And the joke was always, oh, but you'll kill your career if you do that. So that's kind of how that came about. So you kind of adopted that <laughs> into your own brand and have made a, a new career out of it, it seems like. Absolutely. That's well, I kind of knew that going into that, that was going to have to, um, it was going to have to take on a different life um, from what I had done for, you know, 15 years. So yes. So what, what do you do now as killing my career? 
Um, I do some consulting, very small. Um, I don't have any desire to be scalable to anything more than one or two clients a year, usually in three to six month contracts um, is what I work. It's all um, self-funded companies between five and $20 million. Okay. So you help consult people that are going through similar situations to what you went through? Um, it can be. Um, some of it is for uh, attorneys, things like that. Um, a lot of what I do for the pro bono side is to um, help groups or organizations um, become familiar with Twitter. Uh, an example who were injured by uh, surgical mesh. What I was able to do is actually help get them on Twitter. And you don't think that that's a big deal. But when you're talking about women who have been injured and are 70 or 80 years old, um, that's a that's a process in and of itself. So um, that's a lot of what I do for my nonprofit side is to try to help um, unmarket what these companies have marketed, essentially, is it. Okay. And you, uh, you also have a website, I think, where you have some case studies and, and stuff like that. That's the um, killing my career. So I started that in 2014 while I was under SEAL and did that basically to hold both the government and Johnson & Johnson accountable. And um, about the third day out on that, I got a call from my FBI handlers, both of them, and said that, you know, Sarah Bloom, who is the, um, she's the assistant attorney general, is not very happy. And I said, well, neither am I. So <laughs> we're, we're even, essentially, is it. And that's why I did that, though, is uh, not to be like a petulant child and stomp my foot. Um, it was to try to hold both sides accountable uh, during that process. So that's what I that's how that essentially started but what I did was look at what I was doing with the government and basically putting it out on the website simultaneously without divulging that I was the whistleblower because that's illegal so I kind of found a loophole and uh, was hoping that media would take more notice of it so that some of those stories would get out sooner such as Theranos if they had started that in 2014 um, Uber some of the startups like that um, that was the goal but so, so you're doing that during the process of being a whistleblower? Correct. So how did you, how did you balance that? Uh, that was pretty much my full-time job at that point, um, a non-paid job. So I had uh, sold everything I owned and moved back in with my parents at that point. I was no longer able to be employed by the industry that I had been for 15 years. So uh, I used to get like six calls at least a month from recruiters and everything dried up. So... I sat down with my parents and said, here's kind of what I'm thinking of doing is that I, you know, they've always taught me that things are bigger than myself and they are. So um, kind of going back to the DOJ, they said, well, we'll, we'll let you keep your site up, but you got to expand beyond just Johnson and Johnson. So that's when I got into the venture capital side of things. So kind of having that conversation with my parents and with the DOJ and just said, well, this is kind of what I'm going to do here for the next, I think it was about three years I was, uh, was doing that. So, um, at the same time. So, so what was the timeline of like between you becoming a whistleblower, leaving your job and once everything played out with, with your whistleblower experience? So January 4th, 2011, I was wrongfully terminated from Johnson & Johnson to Clarence. And then um, July 2011, I was in Boston um, sitting across the table from the Department of Justice, it, you know, and uh, the FBI. 
CMS, which is healthcare, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the DOD, the Department of Defense, and um, trying to think who else. Oh, the FDA. So uh, pretty much everybody was in the room at the same time. And my attorneys had told me going into that, that if everyone's in the room, it's a pretty big deal. If only one person or two people are there, they're probably not interested in the case. So when I saw everybody there, it was <laughs> kind of a sobering moment. So you left your job or you, you were terminated in January and then in July you were giving information over? Yes, that was my first meeting with the Department of Justice was July 2011. August 2011, I was already wearing a wire and had recorded, I think, more hours <laughs> <laughs> on a wire than the person who did the Pfizer case is what my uh, FBI agent told me kind of as a joke. He's like, you could certainly get people to talk. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, so what did, how did you get people to talk? Like, was it just social gatherings or? or um, you know, part of it is, and it's a lot, and I guess I'll, I'll kind of toggle back and forth between Tesla, but it's a lot where people get pissed off at the company. The employees are there and, they're angry. So it wasn't hard to get people to talk because they were angry about the same things I was angry about. We were trying to fix the problems. And I think that's the hard part is that you realize that these companies don't want to fix the problems. They want to eliminate the person who is exposing the problems. Because problems equal costs to them. Correct. And the really sad part and the part that was really, I think, even hard for the DOJ to get Companies knowingly and willingly build a fraud into the business model. And that is, that's what I had to do the case studies for to basically show that and, you know, over and over and over again, where um, in the case of, uh, you know, a Clarent, I was able to go back to 2014 and almost to the exact day that they decided to commit fraud. And the fraud didn't start until 2018. So for four years, they knew they were going to do that. So this was fairly recent then, long after you were terminated. No, that was or, 2004. So, oh, oh, so 2004. not 14. So, oh, yeah. Okay. So, way back. Um, and then, oh, to take you through the rest of the timeline, then. So, from 2011 to 2012, I wore a uh, wire and did all that stuff. Um, and then it was, I think it was 2012, the subpoenas were d served on the company. Um, so, then my time is with the wire and stuff was a lot less. But during that time, um, I had daily call-ins with my FBI handler. So we would spend probably 30 minutes a day on the phone for over seven months, uh, kind of game planning everything. You know, who did I talk to? What did, what information did I get? Who should they talk to next? Um, you know, kind of helping out in that sense. Okay. So was there a reward ultimately from your being a whistleblower? You know, um, it's funny because the, the DOJ calls it, a, you know, our own award. I, you know, I think it's it was a job for that many years. So to put it in context, I was making $250,000 a year um, when I lost my job. And um, it, in the amount of time that it took the full five years to get through that, I would have made more money if I had kept my mouth shut than if I had done it. So, yes, there you do get compensated. But I think that... Um, Part of the manipulation from the companies and also from the government is to focus on what the whistleblower gets out of it without realizing, well, asking the bigger questions. Where does that money go? The government recovered $18 million from that case. 
where does that money go? Does it go back into healthcare? And um, it was another sobering moment when I was sitting, you know, across the table from one of our many meetings and asked, where does that money go? And everybody looked at each other in the room and they're like, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think I was actually, I was listening to some podcast recently. I don't, I don't remember what it was, but they were talking about SEC whistleblower awards. And apparently that money just goes into the general fund and doesn't go sp- it actually might have been something else besides that those fines, but basically it just goes into the general fund and doesn't necessarily go towards anything related to what the fine was for, which doesn't really make sense. But well, and how, I had tra- that's I'm how sorry. the budget that's how the the federal budgeting process works. So well, and part of what I had asked is, you know, you have to solve the problem, but you also have to put put sort of parameters in there to make sure that it doesn't happen again and to hold, you know, accountable. And I had suggested as, you know, one of the things that the company could no longer get um, subsidies or non-restricted educational grants for a certain amount of time, you know, that you have to put something in place that prevents them from doing it. A fine is not enough. Even putting executives in jail is not enough. It, it has to be something that's going to hurt them long-term financially. And they all looked and they're like, that's a great idea, but you're creating laws. <laughs> Like, well, <laughs> goodness, <laughs> they're logical. That's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Laws require an act of Congress usually. So that yep. there's a reason that saying that something's an act of Congress is a saying. So. <laughs> um, without getting into any anything too gruesome for the podcast, since this is a, a family-friendly podcast here, could you just describe what the fraud was that you uncovered? A little bit like what what all it entailed as far as financials or whatever? Absolutely. Um, I think the best way to describe it is the way I described it to the DOJ. So I put a PowerPoint presentation together when I went and met with them. And the way I explain it is that if you think of a straw, a drinking straw, just a regular straw that has a bunch of holes in it, and your FDA cleared, it's called a 510K clearance, you're cleared to drink water sailing through that straw. Then Doctors can look at that and say, well, you know, we also realized that we could drink soda through that straw. That's called off-label. We can't talk to them about it. If the doctor figures it out on their own, they can do that. The third application for the straw is to snort cocaine through it. (laughs) That's pretty much what our company did. We went straight from being cleared to drink water through it doctors how to snort cocaine through it. And that's just kind of the analogy. They weren't really snorting cocaine through it. But I think it's just to give you sort of um, a way to explain how how they went through the regulatory process and they completely ignored it. Um, they knew that what they were doing was wrong. And we didn't know as reps at the time that they had tried to get it approved the the right way um, with a drug in, in this device, not just the saline. And it was denied by the FDA. So when we were hired, they kind of said, well, we're going to get the approval for this, but the FDA doesn't know what they're doing. And, you know, a lot, a lot like the people at Tesla, you you tend to believe what you're told. And they don't come in the very first day at the job and say, okay, here's all the fraud we're going to commit. And they put it out in a nice book for you. It's very subtle. It's over time. It's pushing boundaries. It's grooming. It's a lot of what I write about on Twitter about um, you know, how they look for easily manipulated CEOs who, you know, that that sort of scenario. It's the same thing with the reps. It goes down that same sort of thing where they groom you. You're making really good money. So, hey, you know, you're already doing this. How about you do this too? So it's kind of a, 
a bit of a manipulation from that standpoint. Yeah, I, I think Elizabeth Holmes is one person that you reference fairly <laughs> frequently. Yes, um, she is the, one of the poster children for that. Travis Kalnick is another one that um, I call them CEOs because there is no way in hell these people should ever be CEOs. And then when you dial it back and you look at it, you're like, yeah, they shouldn't. Um, yeah, they don't I mean, have the qualifications. Like a 20-year-old a that has finished <laughs> like less than two years of college should be a CEO of a company that makes this device that tests blood. Yeah, it, <laughs> In retrospect, it just sounds hilariously silly, but people believed it. They ate it up. So, and I think the part that most people miss about uh, the Holmes Theranos thing is that from the very beginning, if you understood the whole process of the approval, they were only cleared or approved for one test. So when I write about all the time about false claims, you know, or the false sales projections to give the appearance of hypergrowth. That's what they did. They set all the quotas, though, off of 250 tests. So 249 tests were 100% fraud out of the gate. <laughs> and I was like, how is nobody? I'm like, hello? <laughs> Anybody catching this? Like, how is no one seeing this? And it was uh, very frustrating. But fortunately, at that time, I was I, I did have a dialogue, obviously, with the uh, FBI and the DOJ and would kind of point these things out saying, listen, what you're seeing at mine, and I, I kind of joke that if you think of fraud is a hair of, you know, a head of hair, ha hair plugs full of hair. Um, the clarent fraud is like one tiny little hair on the head. And, you know, maybe the Theranos one is two little hairs. So it's small in, in comparison to what the fraud is, but it's the pattern of the fraud that was so important that you can see it being encouraged, replicated, and rewarded in Silicon Valley. So you see it with Theranos, you see it with Uber, um, you know, and you'll see it post after the IPO as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, there may be some some things there with Tesla's autopilot and some of their claims, and the fact that they're actually selling it already when there's not really a regulatory process in place yet for that. That's insane to me. The idea that there is no regulatory body that oversees this, and we're allowing criminals to self-regulate and self-report. Um, the number one thing that happens in startups is that they under-report the adverse events because it, as you said, it hurts their profit. So you're, you can never expect a company like Tesla to report any problems that they have. And I think that there was the case up in San Francisco recently where, um, the person said that the uh, the owner of the car, not the driver that, that killed the gentleman, but the owner mm -hmm. said something about that it's self-erased. <laughs> it didn't self-erase. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> That's um, I, no. With, with that particular incident, I, th I thought I read that the San Francisco Police Department did actually get the, the data from the car, but I might, might have heard that wrong, but... Well, even if they get the data, do they know what they're doing with the data? And that's not a dig to the police. That's not their that's not their area. And that's where there's an issue and a problem with this regulatory and compliance component of it. Um, you know, we think about it from the world of medical devices that there's the FDA there that's supposed to help people, doesn't always. This is so much more dangerous in that context because you have thousands of people, I don't know how many people own Teslas, but you have those people out there who clearly have no regard for their own lives, let alone anybody else's. 
autopilot and you're not paying attention. And I get that those are the extreme cases that we see, you know, on, on Twitter and that sort of thing. But I, I think that it happens more often than the company is certainly willing to admit. And when you have the CEO of the company going on 60 minutes, look, ma, no hands, um, that's a problem. And from the regulatory side, that's, that is off-label promotion of a, a, of a way of a regulatory product is being abused. So that would go under um, either a false claims sort of deal or off-label promotion. And I get that's normally for the medical device world, but I think that that would apply and the language needs to start reflecting that um, in this situation. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a direct analogy. To, from my to my ears at least the way that you described the fraud that you uncovered with the the off-label straw and the cocaine that made me think immediately of Boeing's recent incident where they already had the 737 approved by the FAA and whoever it was Rolls-Royce or GE I don't, I'm not sure which company but they they had a more efficient engine but the engine itself had a different aerodynamic profile so they had to adjust some things but they still called it a 737 max so that they could more easily more quickly get it through the faa's approval processes <laughs> that sounds and, and then they tried to compensate with software and all this other stuff and i know elmer fudd one of our favorite humorous twitter characters has has really been harping on on boeing lately uh, also ted stein has but that that sounds like a very similar situation of of going off label and trying to to skirt through the regulatory process well and that's it and they use i always say that it's innovation used as manipulation to evade regulatory and compliance laws and that's not that's not exclusive just to silicon valley or just to venture capital funded startups you're seeing it everywhere and, and to your point elmer just sent me an article about that today which is on my to-do reading list that um that is about that and he and i went back and forth about um there's counterfeit parts too. So that's the other thing that's a really big concern is that it's happening in medical devices where um, it's a type of plastic um, that the companies here would no longer produce it because it was not meant to be implanted in humans. So uh, it's a, I still think it's a RICO case from Boston Scientific. They allegedly basically farmed that whole piece out to China and brought it back in the country. Um, you're going to see more of that in other industries, not just the medical devices. You're going to see it in aviation. Um, it's happened, it's some in the spinal cages. So when you're talking about putting it in a body, that's one thing. When you're putting it in a plane where there's you know, hundreds of people on it, all of this is so dangerous. And people think that white collar fraud is just, it's a financial fraud. There's a reason I call these people serial killer CEOs because that's exactly what they are. So you mentioned that you worked for, is it Acclarent? A Clarent. A Clarent. So was that who you worked for for 15 years? Or no, Johnson, no. Johnson I, Proper? Oh, no. I worked for a bunch of startups uh, from pharma and medical device for 15 years. So I was at um, A Clarent for, I think it was 2007 to 2011. Okay. Uh, so through those different jobs, though, you, you are familiar with the FDA's approval processes and stuff. Do you, could you just describe some of your background in that regard and knowledge? 
Sure. Um, and I also have a thing on YouTube that I did when I was at the FDA in 2016. And one of the biggest problems is that even the FDA didn't get that there's a difference between pharmaceuticals and medical devices as far as um, kind of the, the road to getting them approved and, and why they exist in different, different universes essentially is it. And um, so on the pharma side, you have a, you get an FDA approval, you have clinical trials and you get you know, you get it approved. You have a patent on that for seven years. Um, and that's where they make their money in that time. On the pharmaceutical or on the medical device side, and I don't think a lot of people get this, is that like 95% of all medical devices are venture capital funded startup first. So um, there is a formula out there that you the, the VCs want eight to 10 times back their original investment in three to five years. The only way that happens is through fraud. So what what they want to do for capital side of, it, of the startups is that they will ignore the regulatory process. So that process is there's three ways to get a medical device approved. One is the 510K, and that's substantial equivalence. And the way I describe that is, is that you have to have a product that is similar to something else. Um, you can say that my product is similar to candy, but you and I both know that if you put taffy in your mouth, it's very different than if you put cotton candy in your mouth. But that's how we're approving medical devices. We're saying it's candy. <laughs> and, and we know that these two things are completely different in the way that they are metabolized or used in the body. And that is the loophole that VCs are famous for. And um, uh, Josh Macauer, who was one of the co-founders of my company, Clarent, uh, is famous for saying that if you make small, subtle changes to the 510K, you can get it through regulatory. <laughs> Fantastic. Is he is he proud of being known for that? Or, um, you know, I would say he probably was. So uh, he uh, he's also with NEA, which is the world's largest venture capital firm. I think they have seventeen billion in outlying capital. So when you think about that, they want eight to ten times that back in three to five years, and it's rinse and repeat. So he's been there a very long time, and. Um, there are a group of people that are involved in that, that they uh, also funded Assure, which I don't know if you guys have followed that on the Tesla Q side at all, but that's the um, permanent birth control that was Conceptus and was purchased by Bayer as Assure. There's tens of thousands of women that are in federal court right now fighting to get this product removed from their body. Um, to bring in a Neuralink sort of uh, side to this, um, where Musk is talking about just shoving stuff on top of the brain, um, if you put a polypropylene in, a, in the part of a body, um, you don't know what it's going to do. What it's happening is with the mesh from the gynecare mesh to the, um, the Assure device is that it is actually breaking apart in the body and it is migrating. So if you think of, I'm trying to think of a way to, to describe this, um, the mesh, and this is probably graphic, but I think it, it tells a good story is that mesh was actually penetrating the vaginal wall and cutting men's penises. Ooh. So that's how it's migrating. <laughs> so when you say that men are like, oh, wait, I think I should pay attention to this now. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I, I would guess that, that with some female healthcare issues, and venture capitalists maybe being more predominantly male, they might not might not listen to or might not really internalize some of the the problems that might be arisen. But but that really makes it hit home. 
Uh, yes. Yeah. So that that's kind of, I think, when you think about what they're trying to do, they don't look at the long-term effects of what this is going to do. So in the instance of mesh cases, and I actually just uh, tweeted this out about how you know everybody's like, well, when is the recall going to happen with autopilot? To give context, it took over seven years for the mesh women to get the FDA to finally make a move on that. And not all of it is removed, but they're, they're slowly forcing the companies to take that product off the market. But that took seven years. Um, it, it, again, in context, I think that it should go faster on autopilot to uh, Musk's own genius. Um, it is easier to remove that product than it is a surgical device from somebody's body or medical device from somebody's body. So that is a simple update, a software update. He was so mm -hmm. proud about how he could, you know, put that in cars. Oh, great. Let's take it out. <laughs> mm -hmm. It would be very easy to disable. Uh, I, I think the current uh, body count f directly related to autopilot is somewhere in the range of four as far as definitive deaths from autopilot. So I, I made a tweet a few days ago. It might have been over the weekend. My guess is that once that number hits 10, I hope that something's done by the time it hits 10. Uh, somebody had said that thousands may die before something's done, but I really hope, I'm gonna it, I hope it doesn't get above 10. That's my oh. personal hope. So, Well, I appreciate that, but I'm going to tell you it's going to be closer to 100 before that happens, unfortunately. Um, if you think about GM and the ignition switch, it was well over 100. It was 104 by the time that got pulled. Um, to that point, Mary Barrow was with GM since 1986 as an engineer. Uh, anybody who's ever worked for a company where you move up the ranks, you know that there are problems. You may not definitively have, you know, all your I's dotted and T's crossed, but you know, at least anecdotally, that there are problems with with a product. Um, it wasn't until I think, what was that, 2014 or 15 initiative switches were pulled, but they knew about it. Docu court documents show that they knew about it all the way back in 2010. So I think that part, and this was a, a very sobering moment for me, was through all of this, realizing that recalls don't happen because a company has the goodness of their heart to decide that that's what they want to do. It is 100% done, at least in my experience with everything I've researched, it is done when a company is under DOJ criminal investigation, sealed. And basically, the company is given the option. You either are going to be sued by the government, criminally and civilly, or you can agree to, you can agree to decide to pull this product right now. You're still going to get charged and fined for it, but we're not going to criminally go after you. And that's the negotiation that happens behind closed doors. You saw it with GM, you saw it with Toyota. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see Volvo just had a couple of recalls. Um, I guarantee you that those are probably also part of a DOJ investigation that's currently sealed. Um, I think that we know that Tesla is already under DOJ criminal investigation. It's for Model 3 uh, false projections. But once you're in the door, you can really kind of broaden the scope of your investigation. So I, I imagine that that'll be part of that. Yeah, one one aspect of my maybe naive hope that the, the body count only gets to 10 is the existence of PAVE, the organization. I forget what exactly that stands for, but it's Partnership for Automotive Vehicle something, education, I think. But basically every other company that's involved with trying to develop autonomous driving is part of this organization. And the one glaring omission is Tesla. So 
that's that's part of my naive hope that the body count doesn't rise above 10. So well, no, and it's not naive. It's a fantastic, listen, it's a great outlook. And I get accused all of the time of being negative. Maybe I am, but I'm also, I'm realistic based on facts. And uh, one of the things that you have to think about is that the first market makes the most money. So mm-hmm. um, uh, Johnson and Johnson CEO and president worldwide president, Alex Gorski famously has said, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent, right? You get it 60% right and go. <laughs> Think about that in a medical device. Now 60%. we're thinking about 60%. And then now if you think of that in the way, in the context of autopilot, I'm going to say that even though that they're saying that there's four deaths, again, they underreport adverse events. So as part of that that fraud formula that, that I put out on Twitter, the you know, um, give the appearance of hypergrowth, part of that is they underreport the adverse events. In the sales rep side of things from the medical device world, we got in trouble if we reported um, adverse events or accidents. Uh, there's a, it's a, it's a federal thing called MAUD, M-A-U-D-E, and I cannot for the life of me tell you what it stands for right now, but basically it's for companies to report when there's a medical device adverse event or there's a problem, a death associated with it. That thing is ridiculous. Things disappear off there all the time. I was tracking all that. I had to take screenshots because from one day to the next, things were missing. I'm like, that's fraud. The next day it's gone. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Following Tesla on Twitter is what got me into to really taking tons of screenshots, especially with Elon's tweets. Oh, absolutely. And listen, I've done the same for NEA and all these things because criminal, the number one thing criminals love to do is rewrite history. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that's really um, missed, I guess I would say, from the media standpoint on things is that I think it was 2016-17, Elon Musk made a comment about SpaceX, how he was looking for volunteers, basically on a suicide mission to Mars. People kind of were like, "Yeah," <laughs> like you just basically said you are OK with killing people. That's not what innovation is. It's not that you're you're kind of calculating in the, uh, you know, uh, the death toll for people. It's to avoid deaths, is it? So he's basically out there saying, yeah, I'm good with killing people and I'm going to need some volunteers. Then he backpedaled it in 2018, was like, yeah, I'll go to Mars too. We all know he's not going anywhere, hopefully, but federal prison. But it's the idea, though, that that um, when somebody tells you who they are, it's that, you know, famous Maya Angelou quote, cool, quote that when somebody tells you who they are believe them Mm -hmm. he has told you that he wants to kill people (laughs) over and over and over again how is the media still not making that link though to autopilot he is okay with killing people start calling him out on that (laughs) move fast and break things right yeah that i've i've twitter i never heard that in silicon valley um i just always you know I, i always heard the manipulation of the cocktail napkin story i think i talk about that quite a bit about how Clarence, you know, we heard that, oh, they were sitting on a, you know, somebody's front porch and who has cocktail napkins on their front porch, first of all, but, uh, you know, that it was the, you know, oh, and we sketched this out. I come to find out later that even the original device at a Clarent was stolen. <laughs> Another big thing at, uh, in Silicon Valley is patent theft, which also Musk has been accused of. So I think that there's a lot of overlap that even though um, Musk is and Tesla is not a startup, I laugh when people say that because... They're 16 he, years old. 
And they would he would have been fired like it's six months in. If you are not profitable in a venture capital funded startup, you do not have a job in six months. That's including rep all the way up the line. Well, so I think part of the problem with Tesla is that Elon was the the lead of the round A funding, I think. So the fact that he put his own money in, I think probably gave him a lot more leeway than than a typical early investor or manager would would have. That's also manipulation, I think, if you look at it that way, where it's that he's saying, well, look, I put money in. Well, let's look at how much he got out in subsidies. So he looks like he's putting skin in the game, but what is he taking out the back end of it? Mm-hmm. That's where, you know. He's taking a lot out. <laughs> I had another thought, and it slipped my mind. How about we go ahead and start talking about Neuralink a little bit? Uh, they sure. Their, their investor day a couple of weeks ago, I forget the exact day, uh, July 16th, I think when it was but i haven't actually read the the paper in depth i do have it printed out in front of me here and i and i don't fell, waste your time i fell asleep during the presentation because it was it started at like 11 o'clock my time so and i was pretty tired so well and honestly it it was like an incubator pitch and i, I don't i'm i'm just i don't i don't ever want to insult and demean anybody. I don't know if everybody knows what an incubator is or not, but an incubator is where the idea starts. So before you even get VC funding, you have a group of people that sit around. It's usually engineers, a doctor, and you that's where all your ideas come from. What he gave as a Neuralink presentation was 100% like just sitting around a room bullshitting for, a, you know, um, a, the, sorry, I'm totally blank now, but... <laughs> For the yes, thank you for the incubator, and that's where I was like, this is, and he's a terrible speaker to begin with. Listen, I get it's hard, all that stuff, but he's awful. He doesn't crack. Well, it's terrible. That's actually part of of what really pushed me towards the Tesla Q side of things was in early 2018. I I was starting to get kind of bigger into following some space related stuff, and I watched one of his presentations for SpaceX, and I was. I was dumbfounded at how bad of a public speaker he is, which Tesla charts mentioned that on his interview with uh, quote the Raven over the weekend. He's, he's definitely not a great public speaker. He has, well, and he doesn't practice like anyone I know that's going to do a pitch, especially, and that was an investor pitch is what that was. Make mm-hmm. no mistake. That was nothing more than uh, just throwing the net out to see who wants to, to get involved in it. But I have seen some really great speakers and I've seen some really terrible speakers. I've also been on the development side of creating pitch decks for VCs or, you know, to get bigger investors, that sort of thing. And I always worked with those people to make sure that you can articulate what you need to, that you've got your anything that's worth more than 10 slides, you've lost people. Like mm-hmm. I have a 10 slide rule for anything. I'm like, if it is longer than 10, learn to edit <laughs> because mm-hmm. And, and that white paper, oh, sorry, do not get me started on that thing. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't read through it yet. I, I will note that the acknowledgement section is less than three full lines, and it does not mention the Department of Defense or DARPA, which is who actually developed the, 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 the quote, sewing device that's supposedly going to implant these really thin wires into your brain. Uh, which the very next day after the presentation, DARPA tweeted that 
that was their invention. It's a little bit of a, a subtle, not so subtle jab at Elon. Oh, I saw that. I was proud of them for that. I thought that's good. And that's I, what he needs is to be held accountable for all the times that he takes credit for other people's work. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you mentioned that that pitch was uh, a fundraising pitch, basically. All of Neuralink, if I'm not mistaken, I think all of Neuralink's now, and- funding up before that was probably from Elon directly or maybe a few yeah, other and- people. I'll put that into context for you too. I think it was like a, he's put a hundred, hundred and fifty million in. I keep seeing different numbers, so let's just be conservative and say he's put a hundred million in. Um, a Clarent, and again, top to bottom fraud, uh, only raised a hundred million and sold in like I think it was four years and sold for seven hundred eighty-five million and had actual viable products. The idea that he spent a hundred million and doesn't even have anything that is through or even close to the FDA process yet is like a, it's a it's an absolute joke. So any anybody that's in the industry, I talked to a bunch of my friends that are still in the industry, and they're all like, "What? What is this?" They're like, "Do people get that this is like the biggest joke?" I'm like, "I'm pretty sure." And I, I laugh because everybody's like, "It's not peer reviewed." I'm like. Who is going to be his peer reviewer? <laughs> He's not a doctor. He's not an engineer. I, Who is his peer? <laughs> Elon has no peers. Come on. Wait. Well, I saw something and I, I would love to give credit and I can't remember who said it, but they're like, is his drug dealer his his peer? And I was like, oh, I'm, I get so angry when I see those. I'm like, I wish I would have been smart enough and snarky enough to come up with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always It's always fun when you think of a joke just too late. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, but it's that's accurate, though. And that's where this idea that he... Oh, my favorite, though, and is I forget the dude's name that is white shirt dude that was standing next to him that was grinning from ear to ear um, when Elon pulled out. And we've done it on monkeys. Like, <laughs> you could just see everybody who has ever done medical devices cringe because it is done all the time. It has to be in order to be able to get a, a product approved, um, but not at that stage and not at that level. And you could tell that Elon was pissed that I forget the other guy that um, called him out the day before that was basically like, yeah, this thing is not ready. So he kind of, it was like an ego thing. You could tell he was challenged and it escalated. Like that's fun for me to watch is when he's <laughs> challenged and how it escalates. Like I use a lot of red flags on Twitter for that. I'm like, you could see the escalation right here. and. Speaking of Tesla charts and doing that podcast, that totally escalated him to tweet about the whatever it is for the solar roof, solar panel. Pulling up. Yeah. 100%. And that's what I made a joke about it on Twitter. I'm like, that's what the FBI calls baiting. I mean, they should probably cut TC a check for that because it was <laughs> like. It was fantastic. But that's where I think that's what I'm trying to do with the sociopathic business model is to get people to see these patterns that not only is it ridiculous that there's something that he says that is just so it's like it's a farce, but also what you can do to prevent that or what you can do to protect yourself from that, that sort of thing. So it's mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, back to the funding topic. I When I was thinking about that, I thought, oh, yeah, Steve Jurvetson just provided some funding for one of Elon's companies, but I was, but that was actually the boring company and not, not Neuralink. So that, that was not subsequent to this most excellent Neuralink presentation that they gave on July the 16th. 
but it was more for the Las Vegas people mover tunnel. Yeah, I just I can't figure out. It's like a stage show every day. You know, it is mm -hmm. like a new sort of juggling act of where can we get money and how can we get it? And I think people are starting to catch on to some degree um, that that is happening. But I, I think that there are people that still, um, I guess, pray to the Church of Elon. And uh, that's the other reason I write a lot about astroturfing. I think that there's a lot of people that think that there's more people that really agree with him than do. Um, for those that aren't familiar, astroturfing is when a company pays a third party company to do marketing for them. It's usually a, like a salt marketing. So it's to combat anything that's negative and truthful. So <laughs> it's to combat Tesla Q mm -hmm. and, um, Essentially, what it does is that they're, you know, okay with doxing, but what they do is they try to keep their clients' hands free. So that's why they'll use a third party usually to create these campaigns. Um, early on in Tesla Q, probably maybe maybe March, April, somewhere of last year, um, there were certain phrases that were coming out, and uh, one of them was about me wanting to f Elon, and um, I created a quip that. Uh, I guess counterbalance that is the right way to put it. Yeah, I think it made um, it onto a, a coffee mug, if I'm not I'm mistaken. I'm very proud of that, I will say. And um, But the point of me doing that wasn't just to be snarky. I mean, that's fun. But what it does is it counteracts that. So then they take out of the cycle, then essentially is it. So you don't see that anymore about me wanting to do that or any woman who is, you know, um, standing up to him wanting to do that. There was another comment about, uh, you know, being cat ladies. I saw it with myself and I think maybe Jen, uh, a couple other people were called, you know, oh, you're the cat ladies. I made a comment that was also not so kind, didn't make it on a mug, thankfully. Uh, my <laughs> parents would not have been proud of that one. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. But what that did then is it takes that language out of circulation. So if you see me being aggressive and doing that, it is a there's a reason for it. So that it, it, part of it too is that we're seeing a lot less of have you driven one. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's the same thing. So you start to see that you know that pattern. The other pattern I thought was interesting is that um, Elon spelled autopilot with a capital A and a capital P. That was on purpose. It was so that all the bots then picked up that same language essentially as it with AP. I pointed that out on Twitter. Right away, that goes away. He's back to mm -hmm. spelling it correct. So when I, it's just because, and again, that was taught to me by the FBI um, doing my case. I didn't realize what astroturfing was before that. I, I'd heard of it. I didn't think it was as prevalent. <laughs> I, guess, I, I think with, with Tesla, it seems to be very prevalent. With any company, though, like I was really surprised that women who were injured by um, Assure uh, were getting doxxed, uh, like, People were calling their doctors. Um, the same thing for um, the gynecare women. And, you know, it's one thing that you guys are fighting from the financial side. Obviously, you've morphed into the philanthropic side of things and the safety and protection side. But these were women who were fighting also injured. So they're fighting these companies that have billions of dollars. They're injured. Their families are being doxxed. And you're like, how are these companies so evil? So for what you see on the Tesla side of thing is, and it's bad, Elon is an idiot, which is different. Uh, most of these other CEOs are at least smart enough to kind of keep their hands out of it. 
he can't help himself. So that makes it fun for me in the cheap seats. Mm. And uh, it makes it easy for the FBI. I say it every day. He makes their job so easy. He does their job for him. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so back to, to Neuralink a little bit. From your perspective, they're very, very far from having anything FDA approved for human trials or or even proper monkey trials or what, what would you say in that regard? Well, I think I had read and I've seen two different things. So one thing said they were going for FDA clearance. The other was saying that they were going for de novo. That's kind of a new sort of thing where they're trying to get things, you know, uh, through in a different way. And then there's something called a PMA and I forget what it stands for, but essentially it's when you have a drug and a device together in a system. So he would have to go 510K, I would think, for that. And I just don't see that happening. The other thing that concerns me, and I wrote about this on Twitter as well, is that there is always a war between certain doctors and surgeons. So there's a neurologist who, you know, studies the the brain in that sense. Then there's the neurosurgeon who actually does the surgery. Um, We saw it with uh, cases of GERD where Um, you know, some doctors were surgeons, so general surgeons were doing the procedure, and then some gastroenterologists were doing it. Um, If you run into a problem as a gastroenterologist while you're doing a surgical procedure, you have to then send them to a surgeon in the middle of a procedure. So it's very dangerous in in some contexts. So the idea that he's doing this sewing machine thing is, I think, to make it so that more people can do the procedure. That's the goal of any any medical device is that you the 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 biggest manipulation is in the hands of a good surgeon it makes them great in the hands of an average surgeon surgeon it makes them better. That's a manipulation. So they have to get more doctors doing the procedure in order to make the money. And so that's where I feel like he's opening it up to have it be like an in-office procedure. Like, I think, what did they say? It was like going to the dentist or something or the, what sort of, I forget what it was. Uh, he gave la- it LASIK, something. I think it's what they. There, that's yeah. it, LASIK, yes. So it's like LASIK. No, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's brain surgery. Yeah, it's quite a bit different than LASIK. <laughs> um, yeah. One thing that uh, I actually finished listening to a, an episode of a podcast just earlier tonight it was uh, an interview with the guy who's the CEO of Control Labs, and they're they're using the interface with with neurons and nerves and such, but they're not doing it invasively. They're using like bracelets around people's hands, and they're doing some really cool stuff. Uh, but they're doing it, seem in from my view, in a much more measured, much more responsible manner than than what it looks like Neuralink's planning to do, which is just to go straight into the brain. Have, well, it, have you heard that, of Control Labs any? Or um, I haven't, and I'll, I'll, I'll certainly look into that. It's interesting, and I do know that there's some, like I'm thinking it's Nevro. There's a couple of different ones. Boston Scientific has one, Medtronic has, where they're doing things like that for depression, for PTSD. There are nerve stimulators that are already out there. But as you said, it's not implanted in the skull base, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, and and to the point before about Neuralink where he's talking about putting like a polypropylene, which is a plastic on the brain that we don't know what it's going to do. So if it breaks apart, just like it did in women's bodies and migrated into really not great places, that thing could migrate down into the brain and cause brain damage or strokes. And there was no talk of that at all, like nothing. And I just was like, and I laughed that they put out something about 
the next day, like, I think that they were mad that everybody was chirping about it on Twitter. And I forget the language that they put, but like, if you're qualified to speak about this, and I'm thinking, Elon Musk is not qualified to speak about this. Yeah. <laughs> like, of all people. Joke. Yes. Uh, well, that company, I think, is is funded by Lux Capital, which is uh, who Josh Wolf is a partner at. And, of course, Josh and Elon have had some, some back and forth on Twitter at different times. But in a way, I, I thinking about that, that uh, company, Control Labs, and Josh Wolf and, and his approach to things, in a way, and the fact that he's he's a venture capitalist, so he is providing funding for these companies, which is basically how Elon got started with Tesla. I, In a way, I feel like Elon's maybe just kind of jealous of Josh and, and his approach and maybe jealous of the fact that Josh has not yet had to do anything to, to be as fraudulent as Elon has maybe. But uh, um, I'm going to get oh. myself in hot water here. Um, I think it's, it's hard for me because I like people personally. And then I also see what they do in a different context. I think Josh is, is like a, seems like a wonderful person, but he also just sold a company, a startup to Johnson and Johnson earlier. I think it was maybe last year, end of last year. So Johnson and Johnson has a pathological history of buying venture capital funded startup fraud. Like every single company of theirs has a DOJ uh, investigation attached to it. So I hope I'm wrong. Listen, there's nothing I like better than being wrong. I know that people will disagree with that, but um, I I was wrong about podcasts. Here I am. I'm eating fried crow for that. (laughs) And um, listen, I mean, that's part of it. To me, I feel like if I'm proven wrong, that's great because that that helps me grow and become better. The same with Scott for the, um, you know, the the hashtags. He and I had kind of gone back and forth just privately about, hey, you know, have you thought of this? When I started doing hashtags in 2014, I found that when I put them all together, because of the algorithm at the time, it didn't work as well. Also, again, I was teaching 70 and 80 year old women how to use Twitter. I am thrilled. I'm thrilled to be wrong about that. I am so glad that Scott's hashtags are working. So I'm wrong. That's fine. I'm happy to admit that. But I just um, I hope I'm wrong about Josh on that. But I have to say that um, I'm not too hopeful in that sense because of um, my history with Johnson and Johnson. And it's not just to say, oh, blanketly, that is it. If you look at Depew Synthes, if you look at uh, Cordis, uh, if you look at all these other companies that Johnson and Johnson owns, where they bought venture capital funded startups, they are all linked to fraud. So um, I hope that this is different. I hope so too, because Josh is one of my favorite podcast guests to listen to, actually. I um, like to listen to him as well. Um, so moving back to to tesla what uh how, how did you start following tesla like what tell us a little bit about that um i'm trying to remember what it was that he said well in 2014 or 15 i wrote an article about subsidies and uh just it was out in the la times first and that was one of the things i was fighting with the government about is subsidies why are we giving subsidies to criminals we just keep handing them over over and over again and we expect a different result. We want them to not be criminals. Well, you're giving them money to be criminals. <laughs> so, so that was kind of the, the start of it. And then his ex-wife, Justine Musk, made some sort of comment somewhere about how it's how it's easy to become a billionaire. And somebody had called her out on it, somebody famous, I forget who it was. And she and I had an exchange then on 
Twitter about that. And then she subsequently blocked me. So, uh, which I always is like, that is that and being called snarky by the DOJ are like my two crowning achievements in life. So um, whenever anybody blocks me like that, I always feel like I'm on the right track, not because I'm being a nuisance, but because what I'm saying is truthful. And uh, Mary Barra also blocked me. Uh, Travis Kalnick also blocked me. All of these people have had DOJ criminal investigations. So I feel like <laughs> I feel like I'm on a good streak with that. So has, has Elon blocked you yet? No, and I'm surprised, but I think it's only because I have written about that extensively and I do know that he is aware of the website. So um, I won't go into how I know, but I do know. So okay. <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> but so I think that um, there was something that he did. Oh, what was it? I was trying to remember that today, like what got me kind of really looking at it. How, oh, how many, oh, go ahead. I know what it was. It was when he shot that car into space. Ah. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is this guy trying to hide? Like, who is doing, like, what, what is so wrong with your business that you think this is it? And I write about image versus substance. That was the image that was covering up something big substance wise. So that's what, that's what triggered it for me. Well, uh, one thing that I noted at the time, that was, that was before I was deeply into Tesla Q Twitter. But what I noted was that I think that launch was actually either one or two days immediately before Tesla's quarterly financial results, which I have started to <laughs> I, <Track. laughs> I I no longer call them uh, quarterly earnings reports for Tesla because they've only had positive earnings for four quarters out of 64 <laughs> or whatever. But uh, yeah, it was it was literally a, like a day before the first quarter. 2018 or no fourth quarter 2017 earning or financials came out so that timing triggered my brain and that so that timing that incident of of timing being so coincidental between his companies was a actually a major contributor to what ultimately pushed me into tesla q twitter along with of course the uh july 15th 2018 tweet from elon where he called Vern unsworth a pedo and then and and of course the the doc the uh martin trip incident and the doxing of montana skeptic and funding secured all all that stuff helped prod me along and is part of why this podcast exists so i think that's great though and i think that um that's the big thing is that we count on media a lot for things and i'm really tough on media and i know that people don't like it but um from the perspective of a sealed whistleblower and there are hundreds out there every day that are trying to get their stories out there the media does not pay attention until the tipping point has already happened until there is a doj known investigation until whistleblowers get so fed up they literally snap <laughs> on twitter um that is where the media needs to do a better job and to help source some of this stuff before there's two ways that I think that media um, can help whistleblowers. One is obviously before, and then one is after. So if you look at the case with Julie Brown and Epstein, uh, that case was closed. And that woman dug and dug and dug and got that re investigation reopened. That is a journalist. Um, somebody who breaks a story before there's a DOJ press release or before there's a known DOJ criminal investigation um, that that's nice and it's really great that you're getting it out there but the people who are under seal need help before that um in order to protect 
society to to protect consumers and to protect shareholders and the general public, these stories need to break sooner and more journalists have to be willing to do the investigative work. Of course, the, the other side of that is the editors that might hold back a story that a journalist has um, and needing to corroborate multiple sources. I don't know if you really need multiple sources in some cases, but I think that's the, the general rule. So that, that might be part of there's that. Them back. There is that. And there's also the financial component that, listen, it's hard when, you know, Wall Street Journal has a, a relationship with Johnson and Johnson for them to write a negative Johnson and Johnson story. So I get that. But I also think that journalists can leak some of those things to other so two other news sources that are out there and i know that you know elon thinks that twitter is a battlefield or whatever it is a war zone um i think it's the best source of news i think it is the fastest way to get news it beats news organizations it's unfiltered unedited and unspun that Mm -hmm. is what you want so i think that if we can pay attention to that and filter some of that um, it's better. I've also been super harsh on John Carreyrou. I don't even know if I'm saying that right from Bad Blood. Um, he missed the biggest part of that story, which is the venture capitalist. He did exactly what the VCs wanted. They made Elizabeth Holmes to be the scapegoat. I call it the Fed fall. We knew she was going to take the Fed fall, but why aren't you? You, you can ten, point to 10 people and they can tell you who Elizabeth Holmes is the lineup. Can you tell me even three of the VCs that were on the board? <laughs> sadly, sadly, I feel like I try to keep up with things pretty well, but I couldn't I couldn't name a single one. Nobody, nobody can. That's the problem. So that's not a mm-hmm. dig at you by any stretch. But that's the point that I'm trying to make with that is that mm-hmm. you've got to go after the, the money in that situation. And in my case, um, they weren't able to get the VCs because they were very smart. Again, they got an easily manipulated CEO and a VP of sales that took the Fed fall for them. So they made sure that the paper trail died before it got to them. And um, I remember that conversation with the FBI when they called and told me that they had arrested my former CEO and VP of sales. And what they don't tell you is just as important as what they do tell you. And um, there's inflection when he uses my name. There was, you know, all these sorts of things that he had said, Milena, we have arrested. <laughs> and indicted <laughs> and there was these pauses and and I was like okay well what about John Chang what about you know Josh Macau or what about NEA what about and they're like Johnson and Johnson has decided to help in the investigation meaning everybody from there on flipped on the executives so that's as far as they could go up the food chain it doesn't mean that the fraud doesn't exist there but the DOJ has to be able to prove it so mm-hmm. in the case with Theranos um I don't think that they were able to prove it, but I do think, and I'm super hopeful that they're going to be able to do that with Uber, um, that Uber should have never been able to IPO because they're under multiple DOJ investigations right now, still for four of it, I think it is. But what I am hopeful that they're doing is that while they're getting all this other stuff together, they're going to go after the VCs that knowingly and willingly fund this fraud. So so back to Tess a little bit, what, you may have to speak in some some pretty big generalities here, but <laughs> with uh, how have you helped Tesla whistleblowers? I'll I'll just ask it like that and let you go wherever you're able to go with that that question. Um, I think the biggest thing is that you feel very isolated as a whistleblower. That's by design. The government doesn't want you talking. Your attorneys don't want you talking. You know uh, that sort of thing. I think it's just 
knowing that there's somebody that understands what you're going through is the biggest thing. It's like a sort of a virtual hug where, you know, um, there's probably not a week that goes by that I don't cry on the phone at least six times with somebody that's going through this process. So six times. Oh yeah. Every week it is somebody. So whether it's from the aviation industry, so it's very timely that I just got something on the FAA that, uh, that there is always somebody that is going through this. And, um, I think one of the biggest things is that when people will reach out to me privately, including whistleblowers, uh, I'll keep it general for this, but um, where they're like that sociopathic business model, I knew what I was feeling was wrong and I knew what they were doing was wrong, but I couldn't articulate it. I was the same way. That's why I created it. I knew that what was going on was wrong. I was told that I couldn't sell anymore. They couldn't tell me how they were getting quotas. I'm like, but none of this is making sense. So Everybody around fraud is, is there's crazy making around it. Everyone feels like a lunatic around fraud, but the people who are committing it sleep like babies at night. <laughs> it's a really unfair sort of situation to be in. So I think that, um, and again, I'm I'm speaking in, in what has been told to me, and I'm very very just blessed when I feel that people feel comfortable enough to share this. But I think it's the idea that they don't feel alone. They get that somebody can finish their sentences. They get that somebody can take what the fraud that they've discussed and dial it out six more spaces and say, okay, look for this. Now look for this. Now look for this. Contact your attorneys and do this, this, and this. I'm not an attorney. I don't want to be an attorney. Um, Part of the issue is, is that attorneys are also used to just taking what companies give them. If you're in a negotiation or a settlement, even the government, this is what you get. <laughs> you don't have to do that. Um, the Everyone always says the Department of Justice does not negotiate with terrorists. Bullshit. They do every single day with companies that are committing fraud, that are harming and killing people. And I think that that's what I tried to get whistleblowers to see is that you don't have to accept what the government gives you. You don't have to accept what the company gives you. If you can do this two-pronged approach, which is the, you know, the forced accountability, public exposure of negative truthful information for the safety and protection of others, along with the federal intervention, you know, to get recalls all the way down to prison, that's the way we create small incremental change that's sustainable. That's the goal. So I think it's getting them to see that or they see it when they call me and are like, this finally makes sense. It's that light bulb moment is, um, is good. One of uh, one of the people who told me and like I, I literally I know it's silly, but I cry like when people tell me these stories that somebody uh, online had put that they uh, that it resonated with them so much that they laminated it and hung it in their work, <laughs> their workroom lunchroom so all the managers could see it like I literally had tears. I was like, oh, like that is that's what it's about for me It is when it resonates with people and I know that it's helping people and um, Bloodsport just sent me something the other day that I'm like, dude, I know you're going to make fun of me, but I'm totally bawling right now. And he's like, look, the sociopathic business model made it organically in a thread. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, finally, like that's the, it's not about me. It's about what it can do to help somebody else that's in that situation. So when those things happen, it's a huge win for me. So if you had a message to send to any any existing or future whistleblowers, uh, would you say that you have enough bandwidth to hear their story still today? Um, yes and no. I will say that um, I'm bad at managing expectations because I want to help everybody. And um, 
there is there's two sides to this. There's people that want to tell you their story, but don't want to get their hands dirty here. Do the story. You, you assume all the risk. <laughs> I'm going to give you some stuff, but I don't want to be involved. That's fine. But you can't expect me to take that risk. If you're not willing to take the risk, you got to put skin in the game. The other part is, is that people will give me tips on things and then they get frustrated that I don't write it fast enough. I'm not writing at the same pace on the website. Um, that I once was, which was like an article a day for a while. I just, I can't keep that pace up and try to talk to people and do six other things. So, and I'm also working on the book portion of this. So um, I, 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 I would say that, yes, I want to be able to help everybody, but I think that at the very least it's to get you in touch with somebody that can help you. So whether it's an attorney, whether it's, you know, um, whether it's more people like you, whether it's an EEOC claim versus a whistleblower claim, you know, those sort of, um, those sort of things. I make no money off of that. I cannot legally, I like to put that out there. I cannot legally make money off of that because I am not an attorney. So, um, if people come to me, it is just me helping them because that's what people should do is try to help people who are in a bad situation that you understand better than anybody. But, but you would be able to point them in some of the right directions. Absolutely. No, and I have probably um, six different uh, whistleblowers over the last probably two years, um, to my understanding, have found good homes. <laughs> so we'll put it that way. Good homes. <laughs> yes, good homes with good attorneys. And that's a, that's a big thing, too. I write a lot about abusive and non-abusive. That's in everything. So there are good attorneys, there are bad attorneys. It's hard to know which are which. I was very fortunate in my process that um, my attorneys, my final attorneys for the whistleblower case were not thrilled about me doing the website, but at the end of the day, um, they saw the advantage. So my case is one of the fastest settled in U.S. history, and it's because I wrote about it every single day. <laughs> so, well, and that's what you have to do. You have to, you know, the DOJ is like, we could hold feet to the fire. I'm like, not fast enough. People's lives are people's lives are destroyed in this process. I'm lucky to be standing and some days I, I barely am still. So it's, I think that it's to understand what these people go through, like the Martin trips, the Christina's, the Anna's, the Carl's from the Tesla side. Um, it, I like, I do, I get super teary when I see like those GoFundMe's because you have no idea like what <laughs> $2 means to people at that time in their life. Like $2 <laughs> is huge. And um, I have to say that I am so inspired by the Tesla Q crowd and all that they've done. So for SCA and for, for, it is amazing because criminals always have more money than their victims and they see to it. And we're seeing it now with Christina where, you know, Tesla's playing games are going back and they're rewriting history again. And they're, you know, changing the rules. It'll bury her. It'll take two years to get through this, and they know that. So I think that um, for people to understand that it's not just about her, she has a bit of a language barrier. She's a remarkable woman. Um, I think that there's some things that get misconstrued in that, but I think that she realizes this isn't about her. It's bigger than her. Yes, the defamation was made to her. But it is about um, what companies do and how they abuse people who come forward and expose negative, truthful information. So um, I, I just I have to say that um, for all that you know, Tesla Q is that that's probably the most inspiring thing that I have seen is just a community pulled together 
um, from all walks of life. I mean, I'm, I have nothing to do with FinTwit. You guys will forget in a day more than I will ever learn. And you've all taught me in a lifetime. So I think that, um, that you see all these different people coming in. There's, you know, people who have the aviation side, like, I love it. It is, it is fascinating from like a sociology standpoint. And then it is just, it is truly inspiring from somebody who went through it and was completely isolated during that time. So to see what these guys have, um, I just would ask that you continue, even if it's little notes to them or keep cheering them on or help them get stories if you can. I mean, whatever you can do to help them keep these stories out there. And part of the thing that media does is that they will say, well, we've done that story. You haven't done that story until there are no more victims. That's when the story is done. So speaking of stories, did you read the the recent Matt Klippenstein article about uh, Tesla entering whistleblower hell? Um, I think I read part of it. I don't think I got all the way through it yet. Do you, do you think that's an apt description of maybe where Tesla's entering now, the, their newest level of hell? Um, yeah, but it's um, it's self induced. Like when you when you see it like that sometimes, and again, I, I don't I don't recall exactly the the context of it, but I think that when you see it that way, it looks like they're angry, disgruntled employees. When you're like, oh, it's whistleblower hell, like everyone's coming forward. You and I both know it's different because we follow Tesla Q, but people who are outside of that look at it and think, oh, they've got a bunch of angry people who, you know, are just complaining. No, people, <laughs> people are dying. People are getting injured. OSHA has been out there more than, I mean, what is the statistic on OSHA? I forget. Anna had said it was something like it's three or four times what any other company has experienced in OSHA calls. Like there are issues. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I saw something today about uh, apparently it was a Tesla policy in some locations to not call 911 or something she, crazy. Like she that. had said that, that, um, that they, and again, so you have to think of it from the same standpoint is that you get in trouble if you do what's right. So you get in trouble if you call 911. I got in trouble if I reported that there were adverse events. People who work at Tesla probably get in trouble if they know that there's something wrong with autopilot and you point it out. They don't want you to do that. So um, that tracks. And I, I guess for me, it's fantastic that they're entering whistleblower hell. It should be. Um, I, I just am ready for him to go to prison, though. Like, I really, really, <laughs> I also have another hashtag for that, <laughs> so um, which I will spare you. But um, yeah, I just think that um, that it's getting old is what it is. Because it's not just, oh, there's a little fraud here, there's a little fraud here. It is a pathological history of fraud that is harming people. Indeed. Uh, well, we've been talking for over 70 minutes now, so I think we'll we'll call it we'll, we'll wrap up the the regular episode. But I would encourage everyone to become a patron and continue listening to the what we're about to talk about. Uh, we're going to get maybe a little bit deeper into the the Tesla specifics, but only for for patrons. So you can go to patreon.com slash Tesla Q podcast and make a monthly contribution. Also, if you want to purchase that excellent mug with Milena's quote on it, you can go to evacuationboy.com. Uh, also, there's the the shock market store from Trish. Uh, I forget exactly what the, the URL is for that, but she's got some, some great artwork on there. Uh, any final words from you, Milena, for the, the regular podcast episode listeners? 
Um, I really do want to thank everybody from Tesla Q who has been so, so kind to help me understand. Like I said, there's a, and like Gabe taught me what the Q was in Tesla Q at first. I, I didn't know it stood for bank. This all started out. So, um, obviously Tesla charts, there's so many evacuation boy, there's so many to thank for the time that you've given me and really helped explain things. I understand how fraud relates to all this, but I don't necessarily always understand the financial side from FinTwit and y'all have been amazing and I truly appreciate it. No problem. We're glad to have you. Uh, and we'll call that episode number 40 of the Tesla Q podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>